Join Anthony Esselin, John Wark Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, August 3rd, 2018. Light, light, light episode today. Oh man, we're one week away from the Pirate Christian Radio Conference. Hui! There's <laughs> lots to be done. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, <gasps> self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we should be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward is far from biblical and far from what God's Word says. So here we are one week out from the uh, Pirate Christian Radio Conference, and I'm up to my uh, alligators and earballs. Um, <laughs> yeah, I messed that up. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, let's just say that today is going to be a super light episode, and uh, and next week will be a very short, and I mean short, uh, broadcast week. We'll probably be able to get programs out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, but after that, it's, uh, yeah, they, we ain't, no, <laughs> that ain't going to happen. But uh, let's do this. Uh, today we will be listening to a good sermon from the late Martin Lloyd-Jones considering the impact of original sin. And the name of the uh, message is titled Original Pollution. We will play it without any commercial interruption. Here is the late Martin Lloyd-Jones. We resume this evening our consideration of the biblical doctrine of original sin. We began our consideration of this uh, doctrine last uh, Friday evening, but it's such a great and a vast subject, we were only able to deal with a portion of it. We're considering, in general, the consequences of Adam's sin, Adam's original sin and transgression, which led to his fall, and in him and through him to the fall of the entire human race. And having considered the consequences in Adam himself and the consequences which befell him immediately, we then went on thus to this consideration 
of the effect of that upon the progeny of Adam. Now, we saw that this uh, subject of original sin is divided into two main sections, or if you like, there are two main aspects to this matter of original sin. The first is original guilt, and it was with that we spent our time uh, towards the end last Friday. Original guilt. We are all guilty, held guilty, uh, for that first sin of Adam. It is imputed to us, put to our account. We are held in that way responsible for it. Now we come to consider the second aspect of this doctrine of original sin. And that is what is known as original pollution. Because you remember the moment Adam sinned, two things happened at once. One was that he became guilty. The second was that a change took place in him. He was not the same as he was before. Changes took place in him which we have considered. Now the doctrine of original sin says that both those consequences that happened to Adam devolve upon us also. So that we are guilty of original pollution as well as original sin. Now what do we mean by this term original pollution. Well, uh, it is uh, something which can be described in this way. First and foremost, obviously, it means in us what it meant in Adam, an absence of that original righteousness which Adam had. He was made in the image and likeness of God, and a part of that was that he was a righteous person. There was in him a righteousness corresponding to the righteousness of God himself. His original righteousness, he lost that. So that all of us are born with an absence of original righteousness. And not only that, we are also born with the presence within us of positive evil. There are those two aspects to this matter of pollution. Now, we must examine it a little bit further. This pollution from which we all suffer as the result of Adam's sin is not merely a disease. It is a sinful and therefore a guilty condition. It isn't merely that we are suffering from a disease, but we are guilty because we are polluted. It is something which must be regarded therefore partly in that legal manner. Another thing we must be careful to observe about it is this. We must not say that it, me that it means that there has been a change in the substance of the soul. You may ask me what you mean by substance of the soul. I mean by that it's constitution. We don't know what that constitution is, as we have seen. But we must be very careful uh, not to say that it means any change in the soul as such. Uh, it isn't a, a kind of substantial change in that way. But it is rather a change along the lines which I shall proceed to elaborate. But let us consider another negative before we do this. We mustn't consider it either as merely a privation of something, of something which we once had. It isn't merely negative. It doesn't just mean the absence of something in the soul. 
No, it is something which is positive. It is a positive, inherent disposition towards sin. In other words, this pollution is something active. It isn't merely that we are not what we ought to be. We are positively what we ought not to be. Now, that came out, of course, last time when we were considering some of the biblical terms and definitions with regard to sin. Your modern psychologists don't like this. They say what you call sin, of course, is merely the absence of qualities. You mustn't say a man's positively bad. What you mean is that he's not good. Sin is negative. No, the Bible says that sin is positive. It isn't the absence of goodness. It is the positive presence of evil and of badness. Man not only is not what he ought to be, he is what he ought not to be. And that is something which we must emphasize because it's emphasized constantly, as I'm going to show you in a few minutes, in the scriptures themselves. Now then, how does this condition, this absence of original righteousness and the presence of positive evil manifest itself in fallen men? How does it manifest itself in all of us? And here again there is a twofold division which is uh, taught and emphasized right through the scriptures. The terms generally used are these. First it shows itself in what is called total depravity. Total depravity. And let me give you the second uh, so that you'll have your headings right. The second is total inability. Total depravity, total inability. Now let's look at these separately. What do we mean by total depravity? Now here again is a term that's often attacked. And indeed, alas, there are Christians who dislike the term almost invariably because they don't know the meaning of the term. They attach a false meaning to the term and they say they can't abide this idea of total depravity. If you ask them what they mean by it, you will see that it's one or the other of these false definitions which I'm now about to give you. We do not mean by total depravity, one, that every man is as thoroughly depraved as he can possibly be. Now, you'll generally find that people who dislike the idea of total depravity define it always in that way. They think total depravity means that every man is as thoroughly bad and depraved as it's possible for him to be. Well, no one has ever defined total depravity in that way. I most certainly do not mean that by total depravity, and the scriptures don't mean that by total depravity. Another thing uh, we, that we do not mean is this. It does not even mean that man in his fallen state has no innate knowledge of God, because he has. Man is totally depraved, and still he has a sense of God within him. So total depravity doesn't mean that he has no innate knowledge of God at all. Another thing it doesn't mean is this. It does not mean that man hasn't a conscience. Therefore it doesn't mean that man has no knowledge between good and evil. Man in a state of total depravity has a conscience and he does recognize the difference between good and evil. But still I haven't finished my list of negatives. Total depravity does not mean that man is incapable of admiring virtue. 
or incapable of disinterested feelings and actions. You notice, you see why I'm emphasizing these negatives? Ah, says your modern psychologist, and as I say, unfortunately, many Christians, I can't abide this doctrine of total depravity. It can't be right to say, look at many men who are not Christians. They've got ideas of virtue. They try to do good. They may be idealistic. Quite so, I say. Total depravity does not mean that a man doesn't recognize virtue or that he's incapable of disinterested feelings and actions. It's not a part of the definition of total depravity at all. And the last negative is this. We do not mean by total depravity that every unregenerate person will indulge in every form of sin. It doesn't mean that either. Well then, says someone, what does it mean? Well, positively it means this. That fallen men or men in his fallen condition has an inherently corrupt nature which extends to every part of his being, every faculty of his soul and body. It means that men, as the result of the sin of Adam and of the fall, has this corrupt condition which applies to every faculty of his soul and of his body. Another thing it means is this that there is no, observe the adjective, there is no spiritual good in him. Oh yes, there's a good deal of natural good. There's a good deal of natural morality. He can recognize pagan virtue. Yes, but there is no spiritual good whatsoever in him. That's what it does mean. Or if you like to elaborate it a bit more, you can put it like this. Man in a state of total depravity, every unregenerate man is at enmity against God. That's a great characteristic always of total depravity. He is naturally at enmity against God and God's holy law. And another way you can put it perhaps is that all his powers are misused and perverted. Genesis 6, 5. Listen. And God saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A most amazing comprehensive statement. I commend to you the study of Genesis 6, 5 very carefully. But listen to Psalm 51, verse 5. Psalm 51, fifth verse. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There again is an account of this total depravity. Shapen in iniquity, conceived in sin. Listen to Jeremiah in the 17th chapter and the 9th verse. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Then I suppose in many ways the classical statement of this doctrine of total depravity is the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans which we have read together just now. There it is. In all its fullness with the variation in the use of the terms describing man as the result of sin. 
I'm not concerned tonight particularly to go into an exposition of the seventh of Romans. I'm simply concerned to show you that its definition of total depravity is a definition which is really complete and perfect. But listen also to Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Another terrible statement of this total depravity. But listen to Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18. Another remarkable statement. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. He talks about the Gentiles being in the vanity of their minds. Listen. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. What an astounding statement that is. Or listen again to Paul in writing to Titus, the third chapter and the third verse. Titus 3, 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. What a terrible description of man's depravity as the result of sin. But you notice that uh, the scriptures in the, some of the passages that I've uh, here quoted to you now and uh, in other places, in order to make this thing perfectly plain and clear, uses a number of terms, and we must be familiar with these terms. I trust that no one is bewildered as to why we are going into all this. The obvious explanation is this. No man can have a true or adequate understanding of the scriptural doctrine of salvation, or no person can appreciate his or her own salvation truly, unless such a person realizes the nature of the disease, the condition out of which we are to be saved by the gospel. In other words, we must understand the truth about ourselves in sin. We can never really know the love of God until we realize this. The way to measure the height of God's love is to first of all measure the depth of our own depravity as the result of the fall of men. Well now I say the scripture in order to bring this right home to us has a number of terms which it uses. Here are some of them. It talks about the flesh. It talks about concupiscence. It talks about the old men. It talks about the law in our members. It talks about the body of sin, the body of death. It talks about the carnal mind. And there are other terms, but those are the chief terms. And I think it is probably correct to say that in general, all those terms really mean the same thing. They're all descriptive of the same thing. The important one, I suppose, the most important of all, because it's the one that tends to be misunderstood most of all, is the term flesh. What does the scripture mean when it talks about the flesh? As the apostle uses it in this seventh of Romans and other places. What is this scriptural term, the flesh? Now, you will find that the scripture uses the term flesh in three main ways. 
The first is it uses the flesh to describe the body, the physical body. The second is it sometimes uses the flesh to stand for the whole person. That no flesh should glory in his presence. It doesn't mean that no physical body should. It means no person. No flesh should glory in his presence. Flesh sometimes means the entire personality, a man. The third meaning is what you may describe as the ethical meaning of flesh. Or if you like, even the spiritual meaning. Now, this is the one which I'm anxious to deal with tonight. But I can imagine somebody asking a question like this. Somebody may say, you tell us that the word flesh is used in three different senses. How am I to know which of the three senses is being used at any given point? To which there is but one answer. The only way to determine which of the three is used is, I'm very happy to tell you, not to have a knowledge of Greek, but to know the context. The Greek doesn't help you a bit. It still uses the same term. The only way in which we can tell which of the meanings the word flesh carries at any given point is the context. And the context invariably, if we allow it to speak to us, will make it quite clear as to which is being used. Well, now let's uh, have a look at this ethical meaning of the term flesh. It's very important to realize that it does not mean the body when it's used in this ethical way. The trouble with us is that it's this flesh of ours. This is the thing that causes all our trouble, says the scripture. That's the argument of Paul in that seventh of Romans. Now, when he says that, he's not thinking of the body. That's obviously important, I think you'll see for this reason, that the whole idea of monasticism was based on that false understanding. They became monks and they half-starved themselves and mutilated their bodies because they thought that sin resided in their physical frames. And the thing to do was to keep the literal body down, and if they did that, they thought that all would be well. Now, the scripture doesn't mean the body. I can easily prove that in this way. You read the uh, lists that are given in various parts of the scripture with regard to the operations of the flesh. And you will find that some of the things mentioned have nothing whatsoever to do with the body. Take, for instance, Paul's famous list in the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Galatians, where he puts it like this. The works of the flesh, he says, are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. All those are definitely connected with the flesh, the physical part of, of men. But then he goes on. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. Variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. Well, now, a heresy has got nothing to do with a man's physical frame at all. It's a sin in the realm of the spirit. But those are all catalogued together as works of the flesh, which I think is enough in and of itself to prove that flesh, when it's thus used in an ethical sense, must never be associated with the physical frame, with the animal part of our being. Or let me put that positively by putting it like this. Flesh in the scripture is almost invariably opposed to the spirit, and especially to the Holy Spirit within us. Flesh and spirit. What's it mean then? Well, it means the working of that nature which we have inherited from Adam. 
That which is entirely natural, that which is entirely without the influence of the Holy Spirit upon it. That's one definition, but take another. The flesh in this ethical sense is the principle or the seat of the principle which in fallen human nature resists the divine law and wars against the spirit. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit lusteth against the flesh. It's that principle in fallen men which wars against the spirit and resists the law of God. Or if you like a still simpler definition, you can describe it as human nature in its estrangement from the divine life. And I think that's as good as any. But perhaps, strangely enough, the best way to understand this term, the flesh, is to take that famous statement which our Lord made to Nicodemus. You'll find it in John 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now our Lord, when he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, is not simply thinking of our physical being. Now he's telling Nicodemus that he's still thinking in a fleshly manner, still thinking after the flesh. What is that? Well, you see, it is that which is devoid of the spirit. Flesh, in other words, is the human race as self-evolved and as self-continued. It is this human race without the Spirit of God in it. Very well then, there is our main definition of this term that is used so frequently in the scripture. And what we are told about our state in a condition of total depravity is that we are in that way in the flesh and acting according to the flesh. Now, one of the main characteristics of our life as the result of that is that it is a life which lacks balance. And this to me is a most important matter. Men consist, as we've seen, of body and soul. If you like, you can think of the soul as having those two aspects, the more spiritual aspect and the other aspect. So that, in a sense, you can use the uh, threefold term body, soul, and spirit. Now, man, we saw, you remember, when he was made by God, was in a perfectly balanced condition. That part of him which was related to God was there and functioning. That part which included his mind, his understanding, his rational part, which enabled him to communicate with men and the world round and about him, there it was working perfectly, and the body was perfect and working perfectly. Yes, but the important thing was this that as God made men, the three parts were working together in a state of perfect harmony. I often feel in the matter of illustrations that I'm somewhat crippled because I'm afraid that so many of you haven't a sufficiently agricultural background to your lives to understand what I'm saying. But if you've ever seen a dairymaid milking a cow in the days when they used to milk with hens and not with these machines they now use, You'd often find dairymaids used to sit on stools which had three legs, little three-legged stools. And it was always a trouble if one leg was shorter than the others, or if one suddenly broke. But there they were, the three. Well, now, man was like that at the beginning. There was this perfect balance. Each part was playing its, just its right part and no more. What has sin done? 
sin has upset the balance. And this condition of being in the flesh means that the balance is gone. Formerly, the spirit controlled everything. It kept the balance. Men in the right relationship to God functioned perfectly in his spirit, in his soul, in his body. The body was kept in its place. You remember Adam and Eve were naked and everything was all right. The moment they sinned, they became conscious of their bodies and they became ashamed and they tried to cover themselves. You see, the body has immediately got out of proportion. And you have the beginning of this modern sex mania. This consciousness of sex, this thinking about it, reading about it, suggesting things to it, looking on it from the outside. That's just a sign of this lack of balance. And men in this fleshly condition, in this uh, state of depravity, is one, I say, who has become utterly lopsided. Uh, Paul describes him, you remember, in the second chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians, and in the second verse is saying that he is guilty of uh, being controlled by lusts of the flesh and of the mind. Something which people forget. Everybody recognizes lusts of the flesh. But according to the Apostle Paul, lusts of the mind are as bad as lusts of the flesh. For man was never meant to be controlled by his mind any more than he was meant to be controlled by his body. He was meant to be controlled by the spiritual. But that, I say, has been lost as the result of sin and the fall. And man, if you like, has become eccentric. He's not at home. He's not balanced. He's lopsided. He hasn't got his balance. Some men are controlled entirely by their bodies, eating and drinking and various other things. Yes, but others, you see, who are not guilty of that, can be equally in a state of lust and equally in the flesh because they're controlled by their earthbound minds, by their own thoughts, by the philosophies of men, and not by God's revelation, and not by God's spirit. And that is why you will find that the Bible seems to teach everywhere that in a sense the last and the ultimate sin is intellectual pride. It was the great trouble with the Greeks. Their pride was a pride of intellect and they wouldn't listen to the gospel. And that is why at times, if one may say such a thing, speaking very humanly and naturally, that is why at times it seems a very much easier thing that a man who is guilty of lusts of the flesh should be saved rather than a man who is guilty of intellectual pride. It is equally terrible if not more so, in scriptural definition. But I mustn't stay with this, let me go on. Other characteristics of men in a state of depravity are these. That he is controlled by self instead of by God. I think it follows of necessity. The original sin was put in, the temptation was put in that form, wasn't it? An appeal was made to pride, to man. Why should you be subservient to God? Why should you allow God to keep this from you? Why don't you assert yourself? Eve fell to the temptation. Adam followed. And thus men fell in terms of self. And the result has been, and it's the most amazing thing, man is a victim of himself. You yourself and I myself are our greatest enemies. The curse of life is that we're all self-centered. We live for self instead of for God. 
And thus we are selfish, we are self-centered, we are jealous and we are envious. As Paul puts it, we are hateful and hating one another. Why? Well, because we're all out for ourselves. Instead of all living to God and in worship of God and to the glory of God, we've all made ourselves gods. And we're revolving around ourselves and our little planets collide with other planets. And thus there are quarrels and disputes and clashes and differences. Man, as the result of this depravity, has become self-centered, egocentric, and can't get away from himself. And, of course, this leads in turn to the misuse of all his faculties. He was meant to use them all to the glory of God. He now uses them to his own glory. They were never meant for that, so they're being abused. And the result of persistent abuses, abuses that they develop wrong habits and eventually they even become defective. And the scripture teaches us that that can happen even to the conscience. Your conscience can be seared with a hot iron. And your conscience may get into such a state that because of ignorance that it really may mislead you. You may think you're right when you're wrong. The conscience needs to be educated. And that is why you'll find the conscience of a savage in a pagan country speaks differently from the conscience of a man who's been educated in virtue and in morality. Thus you see our misused faculties eventually become defective. The final manifestation of our depravity is this one. That we are all slaves of Satan. And there's nothing more depraved than that, in a sense. That is the ultimate of depravity. Not only has our own nature become twisted and perverted in the way we've seen, but still more terrible, I say, is the fact that we've become the slaves of the devil. Our Lord uh, de describes us by nature, and as apart from regeneration, as children of the devil. The works of your father, he says, you will do. We belong to the kingdom of darkness. Oh, let me repeat it again. I've been preaching out of the 11th chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke on a number of Sunday nights, and there it is. The strong man keepeth his goods at peace. Unregenerate mankind is nothing but the goods of the devil. What a terrible state of depravity we are in by nature as the result of Adam's original sin and transgression. Now let us leave this question of total depravity and turn for a moment to the second thing, which is total inability. What does this mean? Well, here's another of the effects of original sin and pollution. And this has reference, obviously, mainly to our spiritual powers. The Bible teaches that man is totally incapable. I'm emphasizing both terms. Man is, as the result of sin, totally incapable. What do I mean by that? Well, again, I don't mean that he cannot perform any natural good. Of course he can. It's obvious. It doesn't mean that he's incapable of civil or civic good and righteousness. Of course he is. His history proves that. You know, it doesn't even mean that he's not capable of an external kind of religion. He is capable of that. A man can be very religious, and yet we still say of him that he's totally depraved and totally incapable. Well, how do you show it? Well, like this. He is totally incapable in this sense, that all his actions are defective, good though they may be in many ways, 
because they are not prompted by a love of God and a love to God and because they are not prompted by a concern about the will and the glory of God. So though they may be ethically and morally good in and of themselves, they are useless because their motive is not true. But let me put this still more specifically. When we say that man is totally incapable, we mean this. He cannot do any act which fundamentally meets God's approval. He cannot do anything which fundamentally meets the demands of God's law. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You read the third chapter of the epistle to the Romans and there you'll find it stated very clearly. All the goodness of the world is as filthy rags. All the goodness is as dung and refuse and loss. Ultimately it has no value. Because it cannot satisfy God's ultimate approval or his law. But we also mean this by total incapacity or total incapability. That man cannot change his fundamental preference for sin and self. He cannot change his own nature. I go further. He cannot even make an approach to such a change. Man cannot get rid of the depravity I've been defining. He can't even make an approach to getting rid of it fundamentally. He can do nothing about his fallen condition. His fundamental total depravity and inability. Even beyond that I must say this. He has no appreciation at all of spiritual truth. That I find in the first epistle to the Corinthians and in the second chapter where Paul says this. The natural man or the natural mind understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God for they are spiritually discerned. Neither can he. Read very carefully that second chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. And you'll find that the apostle's entire case is this. That the natural person, this person who's in the flesh, in the condition of flesh, he not only can't change his nature, he has no understanding or appreciation of spiritual truth. He cannot understand it, says Paul. Why? Well, he answers his own question in the second chapter of Ephesians and the first verse when he tells us that we are dead in trespasses and sins. The natural man or the carnal man, take again that statement in the 8th of Romans, the carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It's an absolute statement of total inability. Let me give you some other scriptures. The new man in Christ is described in John 1.13 as one who is born and not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of the will of God. I've referred already to that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. John 6.44 tells us, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Read again the seventh of Romans where Paul tells us what he cannot do. What the natural man cannot do. Quite incapable of it. And again I say read Romans 8 verses 7 and 8. 
Now here then we see these two great consequences of original sin, original guilt, original pollution. And the pollution manifests itself in these two terrible and terrifying ways. Total depravity, which we have defined, total inability, which we have defined again. And you notice that the essence of the definition of both the depravity and the inability is this, that they concentrate on describing men's spiritual state. It doesn't mean that every man's as bad as he can be. It doesn't mean that he's incapable of any sort of good at all. Why, even animals are capable of that. You see them sometimes doing kindnesses to one another and showing consideration for one another. Of course. But the point is that there is no spiritual value in these things. They have no value in the sight of God. He can, and man can do nothing at all about his own salvation. He can't change his nature. Can the leopard change his skin or the Ethiopian? The leopard change his skin or the Ethiopian? His spot, leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian? His skin? And all these other statements. Man is totally depraved. He is totally incapable. Very well then there, according to the Bible, we see man as he is as the result of Adam's sin and the fall. He is guilty. He is condemned by the law of God. He is polluted. He is depraved. He is under the dominion of self and of sin and of Satan. And he is utterly and absolutely helpless. He has no appreciation of spiritual truth because of his depravity and because he's blinded by the God of this world who will not allow him to have appreciation, even if he wanted it. That's the second Corinthians chapter 4. Well, now then, there is men, and again I would remind you of that great statement as we look at him. God once dwelt here. What a calamity that sin of Adam was. What a terrible, devastating thing. What awful consequences have devolved upon the world. What can be done about such a creature? Is there any hope for him? Is there anything we can say to ourselves before we part and don't meet again for three weeks? as we look at man as he is, as the result of sin and the fall. We've not flinched. We've not tried to protect nor to shield ourselves. We've allowed the scriptures to speak to us. And we've seen this horrible picture, this awful photograph of ourselves as we are born into this world. Is there no hope for us? Well, thank God we all know the answer. There is into that awful condition there came a promise and the thing I think that will fascinate us and charm us throughout eternity is this is that the promise came from the very God against whom men rebelled and still more amazing and remarkable is that it came almost immediately after men had rebelled for the promise was given to men even before he was thrust out of paradise. 
The promise was given to him even in the very garden where in his utter folly he listened to the devil and fell and brought all these horrible consequences upon himself. Even then, without any delay, this amazing God whom we worship and adore in his everlasting and eternal love gave the promise. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. There is going to be a deliverance, a savior, a salvation, and God's universe, man supremely, shall not only be restored to what it was before, but even something beyond it. For in him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. And next week, we shall all, whether we observe times and seasons or not, be thinking of the ultimate crucial act which made all that possible when the Son of God gave himself and bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. Let us pray. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are godless, godlike, matchless, and divine. But the fair glories of thy grace, O oh God, they stagger us and stand out in a more matchless manner than anything else. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich? and free. O oh Lord, we pray thee to enable us to see this more than ever before. O oh God, we thank thee for even the searching of thy word, which humbles us and humiliates us to the dust, and strips us of all our self-righteousness and self-reliance, and reveals us unto ourselves in all our wretchedness and vileness and hopelessness. We thank thee for it all. Because it is only as we realize that, we realize something of that love so amazing and so divine. It gave itself even unto the death of the cross that we might be rescued and redeemed. We would say thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Lord, accept our unworthy praise and adoration. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now throughout the remainder of this our short uncertain life and earthly pilgrimage. And until... We shall see thee face to face. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? 
Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.